Welcome, everyone, to Bulldog Bites, practical tips for busy GCs. I'm your host, Mark Enriquez, a partner in Womble Carlisle's business litigation practice group. With me today as our guest is Evan Taylor. Evan is a risk consultant specializing in cyber insurance with NFP here in Charlotte. He's also a former FBI agent. Thank you for joining us, Evan. Yeah, good to be here. Thanks for having me. Also making his second appearance on Bulldog Bites is my colleague, Alan O'Rourke. Alan recently joined Womble Carlisle after six years as an assistant U.S. attorney in D.C. specializing in cybercrime. Alan, thanks for coming back. Uh, Yeah, thanks for being willing to have me back in again. Great. You know, we're recording this on May 19th, which is exactly one week after the WannaCry ransomware attack infected more than 200,000 computers across the globe, including FedEx and Britain's National Health Service. Alan, what was the WannaCry attack? How did it happen? And is this a harbinger of things to come? Um, I will uh, go in reverse order there. It is absolutely a harbinger of things to come. I think people have been saying that ransomware was the sort of kind of the next big thing for cyber attacks for some time, and, and this certainly validates that. How did it happen? There's actually a very interesting story about how it happened. Um, there's an exploit to the Windows operating system uh, that has a code name, Eternal Blue, and this was leaked by a hacking group called the Shadow Brokers in April of this year. So uh, they claimed that they were leaking NSA hacking tools, and this was part of one of those tools. Microsoft apparently had been tipped off about it and did issue a patch a month earlier in March. So people who had updated their security patches for their operating system were in good shape. But a month after that Shadow Brokers leak, uh, we did indeed see this ransomware attack happen. And that's the major exploit that it used was this Eternal Blue exploit in Windows. Um, As a result of that backstory, what ended up happening is that the companies that were suffered the most are the ones that either had not updated the security patches on their Windows systems, or uh, what was more often the case is they were running old and unsupported versions of Windows, like Windows XP or Windows 2008. And that's a lot of the news you hear around the National Health Service, and and especially a lot of the victims in China. A lot of people just, you know, either they couldn't afford it or they're using a pirated version of the operating system. Whatever it was, they weren't doing security patches, and that's why it was so easy for them to be victimized. The ransomware attack kind of works like any ransomware. So it takes control of your computer, encrypts your computer files so that they're not readable to you or or accessible to you, and then demands a ransom to get back access to your files. In this case, the ransom was $300, which is on the cheap side, although a ransomware tends to be pretty cheap. They want people to pay without thinking about it too hard. And even though you read about the expensive ransomware in the news, the more normal thing is to have it be an eminently payable amount. This ransom was supposed to double to $600 after three days, and then your files are supposed to be deleted after seven days. I think today is day seven from the inception of the attack. So we'll see at the end of the day today whether that third phase came true. One interesting thing about the ransomware attack is that in addition to just being delivered onto a machine because someone clicks on a link or downloads a malicious attachment to an email, once it's installed on that machine, in addition to performing the ransomware attack on that machine, uh, it acts like a worm so that it will start looking and scanning the internal network of that computer to look for other computers that have the same vulnerability. So that it ended up being the case that if anybody in your network clicks on that link and gets victimized, now that that malware is in your network somewhere, 
it's able to find you and your system without you having to click on a link. Uh, and so then it spreads like a worm. And that's why you see these organizations where a big part of their network got attacked at the same time, like the National Health Service. I think according to DHS, uh, only like 10 organizations in the United States uh, reported being victimized. Uh, we, we did pretty well. And I think it's a reflection of us paying money for the newer <laughs> version of Windows right. and, and updating our security patches. But certainly worldwide, it, it was a, a very devastating attack and really demonstrated how a pretty, what many are calling kind of an amateurish looking cyber attack can just sort of spread so quickly and do so much damage. So in many ways, I think this is a watershed moment. We've had major data breaches before, but I think that for in the past, it's the businesses and organizations who probably kind of hopefully had that eye-opening moment before. Now with this ransomware attack, because it did affect actual services like healthcare, like the police service, and the thought is that this might be a wake-up call for everyone, not just businesses, but for consumers and individuals about, you know, this basically new era of cyber warfare that we live in now. Great. Thank you. And I'd remind our listeners, one of our earlier podcasts actually included a client who chose to remain anonymous and Claire Rauscher, another of our partners, talking about what actually happened to their firm, how they lost control of their servers in a ransomware attack. So that may have been a wake-up call. There have been earlier wake-up calls, but this is certainly more global in nature. I think with all the, the panic, people are wondering what they can do. And we've touched on some of the cybersecurity pieces, but another thing you can do is get insurance. And that's one of the reasons I've asked Evan to join us. Evan, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Yeah. So uh, I'm from the Charlotte area originally, and I went to Wake Forest University, go Deeks. And I moved back to Charlotte after attending Wake, and I worked for the FBI. I served in an intelligence capacity for the Bureau uh, for just about six years. I worked uh, counterintelligence and cyber matters. And, uh, you know, at that time, ransomware, I would say, uh, was not as prolific as it is today. But ransomware attacks, depending on the statistic and who's calculating it, when it was reported, I mean, we're in the thousands of attacks every day. So it's definitely, I'd say, one of the largest threats to businesses for sure. You know, since leaving the Bureau, I worked for BB&T Bank and now work for NFP, which is a commercial insurance brokerage agency out of New York. It's about 3,500 employees and 150 offices. And so we do property and casualty insurance, which is what I do day in and day out, um, employee health benefits, retirement, 401k type work for organizations. And as a part of property and casualty insurance, you can purchase cyber liability insurance policies. So standalone insurance policies that will transfer the risk associated with the breach and the cost of third-party liability and transfer that to an insurance carrier. I think a lot of the listeners have probably heard of cyber insurance, but some may not be sure why they need it or what is and is not covered. Can you give our listeners who may be thinking about it or maybe now have run after hearing about these attacks to see if ransomware is covered or what their coverage looks like, some things that listeners should be thinking about in connection with their cyber insurance coverage? Yeah, so uh, let me first talk about the marketplace and then we'll talk about specifically what's covered. So Cyber liability insurance, I think, you know, it's network privacy, privacy liability type coverages. It's been around for years, and I'd say it's really started to mature in the last three to five years. Several years ago, there was probably 30 to 40 carriers that were in the marketplace. Uh, there's now 80 plus carriers that are in the marketplace. So it's growing. Uh, carriers see that it's a, a profitable line, that there's exclusions in contemporary 
general liability policies, crime policies, directors and officers policies. So if businesses are relying on those lines of insurance to cover them in the event of a cyber breach, it's most often excluded. And typically you find that on page 90 of an insurance policy that nobody ever gets to. But carriers have made a very pointed effort to exclude cyber breaches from those policies. So carriers have created standalone cyber liability insurance. We're into the three or four billion dollars of premium that's written globally within cyber liability insurance. And so it's a many, many businesses have purchased and are continuing to purchase it. I'd say in terms of line items and what does it cover, uh, when you think about WannaCry or you think about a business email compromise where you have wiring instructions that are compromised and fraudulent wire transfers that are sent, you think about a lot of the big threats to businesses that we're seeing when we talk about data breaches. Right after a data breach, you have to work with an incident response firm to remediate a breach, make sure an attacker's off the business network, and understand the scope and scale of the breach that occurred, what was stolen, if there are victims, so credit card information or healthcare-related information on customers or, or people that do business with that business, they have to be notified. So you have to understand the, the scope of what was stolen. You have to offer, often by law, credit monitoring services to those victims, typically for two years. You have to typically go get outside legal counsel because you have to hire somebody like Womble Carlisle, somebody like Alan, who does this all day, every day, who understands how breaches work to know how to coach you through the breach and to notify victims and to set up credit monitoring services. All those line items are covered by the policies. So there's first-party loss and there's third-party loss, and that's typically how it's evaluated within the policies. So first-party losses, these are the direct costs after a breach. So we've talked about legal services, forensic incident response assistance, notifying affected individuals that they've been victimized, the credit monitoring services. If it's a really large-scale breach, you could have to set up a call center, and that could be underwritten by the insurance product. Public relations, crisis management type assistance to coach you through a breach. And then you have reputational type risk. Um, Sometimes that's harder to quantify, but it can be underwritten by the product. Additionally, when we talk about ransomware, many of the policies that are coming out now have cyber extortion line items where they actually will quantify sublimits within the policy of what they will cover should you pay the ransom. If you pay the extortion payment, they will reimburse you for that extortion payment. I was going to ask about that. So that, that you can get coverage that will essentially cover the extortion? You can. You can. And, and Alan, chime in on that. I guess I worry, I certainly understand businesses wanting to get that coverage. I guess from a public policy standpoint, it's troubling to me that you can go buy insurance to basically pay an extortionist ransomware payment, right? Isn't that going to simply encourage more ransomware attacks if they know that there's coverage so, you know, people aren't coming out of pocket? You would think so, although it's in the context of uh, of attention that is already exists. So, Law enforcement, cybersecurity professionals, the normal mantra is don't pay. But I think that part of where that mantra is coming from is a sense that they don't want to promote this type of criminal activity. But when it's you and your business, uh, especially if it's a hospital or a business that just can't put up with any downtime in their operations, frequently paying is you feel like it's your only choice. And if you don't have a backup that you can use and, and you don't have a way to get around the ransomware, maybe it is your only choice. So I think that there's a real tension between the needs of the individual and the needs of the community. And the advice not to pay is good advice, but it does certainly come from that sort of public policy standpoint. 
you know, for folks who are listening and who are actually thinking to themselves, should I pay or should I not? I would also point out that this is an extremely fact-intensive thing. Not all ransomware is the same. And so when you're working with your remediator company, if you work with law enforcement, they'll be able to take, hopefully, the um, signature from the malware or a signature from the encryption and go see what other people have done and whether there was a way to disable the malware or whether people who have paid before actually had their files decrypted. So uh, hopefully there will be some ability to, to get information about the particular ransomware that you're dealing with and whether, uh, and that might affect a decision about whether to pay. Great. Evan, are the different, you've outlined some different types of coverage, first party coverage, third party coverage. Mm-hmm. In terms of a company getting a quote or rate structure, are those kind of line itemed out? Do you pay separately for first party or third party? Do you pay separately for extortion coverage or ransomware coverage? How, how is that addressed? You do. So, um, to even take a step further back and evaluating whether you should get the coverage or not, and if you believe you should, with 80-some carriers in the marketplace, this is not a standardized line of insurance. So when you go seek general liability insurance, you're going to fill out a standard insurance industry application, the same that you would fill out no matter who you would work with. And um, carriers are going to look at that risk, and they've been placing that risk, underwriting that risk, evaluating that risk for decades. Um, Cyber breaches are a little different, and cyber liability insurance costs are a little different. So of the 80-some carriers that I mentioned earlier, Every carrier has a different application with different length. They all have different appetites and industries that they will underwrite and won't underwrite, different size businesses they will underwrite and not underwrite. And so some carriers are in the marketplace to make money, and you can clearly see that when they have just voluminous exclusions that would not be in the best interest of a client. Others have built great reputations in the marketplace. They pay claims. They're quick to respond in the event of a breach. They have breach response teams that really coach you through the process. And I'd say really the the conduit to services that you get, that's the biggest aid that comes with a cyber liability policy. If you've not secured and have existing relationships with all those types of vendors, whether it's Womble for legal services, an incident response firm, uh, if you know what you're going to do for victim notification and credit monitoring and the reputational risk and the public relations assistance, if if you don't have those relationships in place, the product is meant to cater to bring those services to you right after a breach. So to answer your question, there are line items for each of those first-party, third-party coverages. A lot of carriers, we're moving away from sublimits. So if you want to go into the marketplace and get $5 million of coverage, first we can evaluate how much coverage you should get through going through a series of questions and doing some breach cost estimation work. So uh, but once you go into the marketplace, they will outline which of those first and third party coverages they are willing to provide for you as a customer. And then they, you know, if you have $5 million of coverage, sometimes they will give you full limits for each of those first party categories and some of the third party categories. Sometimes they will sublimit it based on your risk, the type of business that you do, the exposure that you might have, how you secure your networks. And so it's really on the insurance broker that you work with to understand your exposures, evaluate your gaps, um, work with you potentially if you're going to do risk assessments, vulnerability assessments, penetration testing, to understand how vulnerable you may be, to then negotiate the best policy that gives you the best coverage that's applicable to your business. Gotcha. If I may, uh, penetration testing is, is sort of a term of art, but it's this idea of 
scanning your network, looking for vulnerabilities in your network, you know, maybe even trying out different white hat hacking attacks on your network just to try to see if you can get in. And so sometimes they call that penetration testing or pen testing. And white hat hacker is someone who is trying to hack, but they're doing it for a good reason. They want to tell you, yeah, I broke into your system. They're not there to do anything bad. Hacker uh, for good. Yeah. So, yeah, if you want to, like, talk in the biz, uh, there's the black hat hacker uh, who is a cyber criminal. And the big hacking conference every year in, in the United States in Las Vegas is called Black Hat. And there's the white hat hacker who is going to be a cybersecurity professional, but who's carrying out network intrusion-related activity as part of a you know, ethical you know, hacking thing. And then we have this whole world of gray hat where you might just call it vigilante activity that is, um, you know, that's not really necessarily malicious, but at the same time, it's not necessarily helpful. An example is the, uh, I'll avoid too much of a tangent, is the, the Bricker bot. Somebody wrote a malware that will go out and find Internet of Things devices that are poorly secured and then will attack them and brick them. That is like disable the device altogether. Obviously, that's terrible for the owner of that device, but the stated goal of this person was to prevent the development of what we call botnets, like the Mirai botnet, where somebody has used the same malware to go out and then control these devices and then attack others. So it's one of those things where it's like, on the one hand, you're trying to fight the botnets. On the other hand, you're <laughs> breaking everybody's stuff, you know? So yeah. uh, that's the whole gray hat world. Right. Your your refrigerator that's connected to the internet now yeah. does not work. Yeah. Yeah. Allegedly for a good reason. Uh, Evan, I know obviously the rates are going to vary tremendously based on the particulars of the customer, you know, what the company needs, what they buy. Can you give our listeners, particularly those that may not have any cyber insurance at all, I mean, how do rates compare to traditional commercial general liability, we often call it CGL policies. Is cyber more or less than CGL? You know, I think it might be helpful for folks sure. who don't know, you know, have heard they should have it, worry how expensive it is. Can you give a sense of what kind of rates would be in comparison to other insurance that our clients probably do have? So I will give you a, a good attorney answer and tell you it depends. Uh, but what I'll say is um, in terms of limits, most small, medium-sized businesses, they'll enter the market usually at the low end at a million dollars of coverage on an aggregate basis. So that's, you have a million dollars of potential spend that you could exhaust over the course of a policy period of one year. Whether it's a million or three or five, that's where you see people typically enter the market. A lot of people are entering, a lot of companies are entering the market because they're being contractually driven. So they get a huge new customer that says, we would love to do business with you, but you have to have $5 million of cyber liability insurance and list us, your client, as additional insured. So should you have a breach, we could tap into your policy. And we will work with a client to figure out, is that an appropriate amount? Should we counter? And then where's the best market to place that? Again, we do a lot of benchmarking on limits so that we can make appropriate recommendations and then during contract negotiations make appropriate counters so that they're properly positioned in the marketplace. In terms of pricing, carriers, there's one particular carrier I have in mind. Um, they're very comfortable and very aggressively pricing $1 million of coverage for small businesses. They want to be in the small business market. As soon as you go to $2 million or three or four, they're not competitive in the least. And that's one particular carrier. So I would say when you're talking about primary layers, so a, a carrier that's going to take all of that one, two, five, ten million dollar layer of coverage and they're going to assume all that risk, it's really contingent on the company, the type of business they're in, how many, you know, they they're really underwriting this based on the records. So what types of records do you have on your network? Um 
and how many do you have? And they want to understand how you secure them. How do you transmit them? Are they encrypted? That's the record exposure is where they're really seeing the risk. And so is I, I know I do a lot of e-discovery, and we've talked a little bit about that on podcasts. You know, one of the issues is often data mapping, figuring out where your data is, uh, which is often something you have to do if you're going to implement a litigation hold. So right. some of our customers have already struggled through that whole data mapping process. It sounds almost like for cyber insurance, they're doing a similar process of figuring out what data the company has and not only where it is, but how it's secured. That's correct. Yeah. So... Uh, you're not going to see a lot of carriers that are going to get in the weeds when they ask for record counts on applications, they're taking your word for it. And so a lot of people would say, well, that seems like a pretty flawed mechanism. Uh, But like any insurance application, if you say you have a million records that could potentially be exposed and then you file a claim with 5 million records of exposure, there's a misrepresentation that's been made on that application. And so a carrier, in theory, could deny that claim. So what you put on that application needs to be the absolute truth. And um, we've seen some customers that spend 60 days doing data mapping and doing penetration testing so that they feel like their application is the truest representation of their company. Gotcha. What about, I guess maybe they're related. I'm I'm wondering about trends in losses and also in premiums. Is it, certainly there's been more news around cyber attacks and and other stuff. Are are there increasing losses and have premiums moved up in response to that? Yeah, so we're, um, you know, there's general industry information that says we're going to be at four or five billion dollars of premium. We're going to be at seven, eight by 2020. By 2025, we'll be at, I've heard, 13, 14, 15 billion in premium. Again, some of that's being driven by contractual obligation. Some of that's being driven by the fact that things like WannaCry are happening and, and businesses are coming to the marketplace saying we need to be able to transfer this risk. But um, like any industry, Uh, you're going to have more businesses that are purchasing coverage. They're going to be paying a premium, and so should they have a breach, I don't think breaches are going to stop. I think attackers are going to continue to find really innovative ways to monetize data theft. And I think what we'll see is more claims are going to be made because there's more insureds in the marketplace. And as that happens, you're going to have more claims. It's going to drive premium bases up or premium rates up amongst the industry. And so customers are going to pay more five years from now and 10 years from now than they pay currently just because you've got a, a larger exposure within the marketplace. How do those figures, the billions of dollars in premiums, compare to something like director and office or DNO coverage? Do you know, I mean, is there are people spending that much on DNO, or is this kind of overtaken those areas? I, I don't have a sense of what total premiums are in some of the other yeah, lines total premium that our clients volume, may be having. Total premium volume, I, I don't know the numbers there. I can tell you that directors and officers, errors and emissions, DNO, ENO. And then your your just traditional lines of insurance like journal liability, auto fleet coverage, workers' compensation cover. You know, workers' compensation is driven by state law, so you've got a lot of businesses that are they're paying workers' comp because they have to to conduct business. Property coverage, you have to have property coverage on your building, so a lot higher premium volume. And like your management liability lines, like DNO and ENO, they've been around for a long time, so it's going to be a lot larger premium basis. Yeah, gotcha. 
you mentioned a couple of times that there are now some contracts that say you've got to have cyber. Obviously, in most mortgages say you've got to have fire insurance, right? That's kind of a, a basic thing, whether you're a homeowner or a company. You, if you've got a commercial building, you've got to have fire insurance. It sounds like you're seeing a trend in that direction where companies will say, we're not going to contract with you. We're not going to share data with you unless you can get, show us you've got a cyber policy that's going to give us some recourse if there's a, a hack or a breach in your system. That's correct. So um, I see very simple contract verbiage right now that says one of our clients, one of my clients will have to have, we'll say $5 million of cyber liability insurance. We typically will want to understand exactly what they mean by that. Again, you could have 10 lines that show subcategories within that cyber liability coverage that break out first-party loss, third-party loss, the things that we discussed earlier. So we just, what we want to know is that just an aggregate total amount of coverage that their customer wants, uh, or do they want to be even more specific about that? And then you also get into the question about umbrella lines of insurance. Now, Within cyber liability, it's really excess liability. So umbrella typically covers workers' compensation and GL, and that's what it sits on top of. An umbrella is only good as the lines of insurance that it sits on top of. But excess liability can sit on top of cyber liability. And so we'll see carriers that they will take the risk on the first $5 million of loss, but they're not comfortable taking $40 million of loss, obviously. And so you'll see other carriers that will enter the market and say, we'll take 5 to $15 million and another carrier will say, we'll take 15 to 25. And so they'll tower the insurance coverage and you'll have multiple carriers that are underwriting that product. And then obviously the, uh, the rates, there's a less likelihood you're going to get to a $100 million breach uh, than there is, you know, should you have a breach, somebody that is on the hook for the first $5 million is going to pay out. So they're going to receive the, the lion's share of that premium from an underwriting standpoint from a carrier's gotcha. perspective. Interesting. Well, and I think that's an important tip for our listeners that if you are sharing data with other folks, you may want to look at including a standard clause in your contract that they have insurance. And so I th- I'm beginning to think that's another that needs to go into our set of contract terms anytime there's a data share. Uh, yeah, Alan, yeah, you look if like I you may, want to add yeah, something we, on we, that. Uh, our, um, top shelf team of cybersecurity folks in the privacy and cyber law team, that's a, that's a big part of what they do is they go through these contracts. They're looking to make sure that type of cybersecurity language is in place, along with all sorts of other contractual language that is coming from regulated industries like health and financial. And then of course the you know upcoming a new wave of regulation from the EU. So the cyber insurance piece, as well as other pieces uh, are now indeed becoming common uh, common things in contracts. You know, Alan, thanks for chiming in. I was thinking about, we talked about the the hack in terms of the British National Health Service, and you talked about hospitals that may have to have access to data. One thing I worry about, I wonder what the liability is of a hospital. Let's say you've hacked, maybe it's not even a ransomware or it's a ransom you can't pay or choose not to pay, and now because you lose medical records, you give penicillin to the patient that's allergic to penicillin, but you don't have the records because they've been destroyed or locked. Um, Is there liability on the hospital, on the physician? Do we have any guidance on, you know, what happens? Can the, you know, when when that patient dies because they got penicillin, can the estate sue and say, we know you gave him penicillin, and we know that you wouldn't have given him penicillin if those records had been available. And so really, we think the liability of the hospital is inadequate protection of the records, inadequate uh, cybersecurity. And as a result, you know, the patient died. You think, have, have we seen any suits like that? Do we think we'll see suits like that? Um, 
Uh, I haven't yet, although I think we will. And you and I were chit-chatting about this separately, and it came in the context of an observation about, you know, an implication of this WannaCry attack. And, you know, I think, and also just to follow up on what Evan was saying about even the cyber assurance policy, they're looking at what records you have, you know, and, and sort of the cost if you were to lose those records. Uh, because a lot of what we, the way we've conceptualized or thought about cyber attacks has been a data breach, right? Like the Target data breach or the Sony data breach. And a lot of the regulations uh, relating to cyber attacks focuses on that idea of unauthorized access to or unauthorized disclosure of sensitive information. So it's the loss of information or the publication or sharing of information uh, that's sensitive uh, that is the harm. And then when we're thinking about liability, we're thinking about liability stemming from that. And so it's either a uh, FTC or, or other regulatory enforcement action where they're saying, hey, you know, this was your privacy policy, this was your data security policy you advertised and you, know, you didn't live up to it, or a state attorney general, typically with a similar theory, or a consumer class action. Uh, and we certainly have seen those things a lot. And I think that the development of a litigation in that space has been hampered somewhat by the challenges of standing. So for the plaintiff to be able to show a particularized harm for that plaintiff, you know, frequently if you walk into court and you say, oh, here's this big class action, and all of us who were the consumers whose data was uh, lost, and then the court will say, well, how are you harmed? And they'll say, oh, well, we had this heightened risk of identity theft. And so some courts are letting that go through and, and letting it get past the motion to dismiss, but other courts are not. So that's how the response to that from the plaintiff bar has been to have the liability be essentially not living up to your promises. So you promised a certain amount of cybersecurity for your business. You promised a certain amount of you know privacy with regard to your records management, and you didn't live up to it. The thing that, about WannaCry that's interesting is that you know now it's not... Uh, it's not really the loss of records, right? That's going to be kind of what's happening here. It's if an attack that will shut down your business. And so if you are delivering services to people and then you stop delivering those services, it would be, I think that the, it seems to me that depending on what the service is and, and depending on what happens as a result, it's going to be a lot easier for a plaintiff to come into court and explain why they were harmed. They're not going to have to say, uh, while I have a slightly higher risk of identity theft, they're going to be able to say, uh, I was supposed to get surgery that day, and I couldn't, and as a result, my condition worsened. So the particular facts are going to vary from case to case, but the overall observation is that before the theme was loss of information, and as we see with this ransomware attack, uh, it's something much more. It's you know this disruption of service. Gotcha. And, and in the long run, that's just going to continue. Um, yeah. So especially with the Internet of Things, you can see how the implications of cyber attacks on consumers is going to keep moving in the direction of basically disrupting their day-to-day -day life instead of merely creating a heightened risk of identity theft. And, and certainly you can imagine, I mentioned as an example earlier, the gray hat hacker, you know, Brickerbot, while... You know, what if you sell smart cameras and you've sold 100,000 of these cameras and you left the hard-coded password of 1234 so that you would have a backdoor to be able to talk to those cameras? As a result of that very negligent approach to cybersecurity, Brickerbot disables 100,000 cameras that you sold to all these consumers. You can imagine it'll be very easy. It'll be, just, it'll be like a product liability case. You know, it won't have the same challenges that of standing that we've seen before. Great. 
Let me speak to uh, let me speak to the the issue maybe of, of bodily injury associated with a breach or as a result of a breach. So, when we talk about the insurance aspects of that, it, mainly in the healthcare industry, like we saw with WannaCry targeting a healthcare network, one there's a lot of policies that will exclude socially engineered emails. And so, if a socially engineered email was sent, somebody clicked on something they shouldn't have clicked on with malware in an attachment or in a hyperlink they clicked on, and that was the root cause of the ransomware. There are certain carriers that are going to exclude that. And so you're going to want to make really certain that you know what's included and what is excluded. But should it be included, you still have associated bodily injury that came as a result of the breach. Had the breach not happened, the bodily injury would not have happened. And so bodily injury and property damage in the insurance business are covered by general liability insurance policies. And there are some carriers that are offering cyber liability insurance and general liability policies combined on the same form because they see the growing risk of bodily injury, property damage that comes as a result of a breach. And so if that is a a potential exposure for your healthcare organization or your company, you want to make sure you're placed with the right carrier that recognizes that risk and is going to underwrite it on the same form so that you don't get caught in between, say, your general liability carrier and your cyber liability carrier in the event that you have an actual breach. Great point. No, I think that's a great point that a lot of clients probably haven't focused on, that interconnection. They may assume, oh, if a patient gets injured, we've got coverage for that. But not you necessarily. May, you, you, yeah. The answer is not necessarily, because is this really cyber-triggered, and how do those policies Yeah, what's interact? the root cause of the loss? What's right. the root cause of yeah, the that's loss? A great, you know, that's not a great to, question. Not to speak off the cuff, and you're the expert, but it would seem to me that if a policy was excluding social engineering, like, you know, a social engineering email, I mean, that's like... It's almost not worth the paper. It's yeah, it's like, I mean, something like 80 or 90% of cyber attacks are going to have a social engineering component. Uh, well, so I'll give you, you know? I'll give you an example of a, a carrier in the marketplace that um, they will write a million or $2 million policy, but there is an exclusion that you can then purchase an endorsement to the policy to remove the exclusion, and that will cover socially engineered emails. So if somebody deceives you and sends you a socially engineered email and that's the root cause of the breach, it then sublimits your coverage. So if you had a million dollars of coverage, you're now going to pay not a $5,000 deductible, in their case, a $25,000 deductible, and they will only cap their reimbursement at 100000 So in effect, oh, wow. you've got very limited coverage. And just to put it plainly, it seems like free money for a carrier. So you want to be very right. certain you're with the right carrier that is in the market, will not leave the market, and they're taking care of their customers. Yeah. No, that makes sense. That would seem to me what you're protecting against, right? right. A lot of these right. hacks are employees that click on something they shouldn't have or don't set a password when yeah. they should have. I mean, we know these are the main vulnerabilities are essentially mm-hmm. human error. So to buy coverage and then realize you've got an exclusion that says, mm-hmm. oh, my employee clicked on the you know, the social engineering, I could see that being very frustrating for customers that thought they were buying cybersecurity and then ha- then get hacked. So right. that's, a, yeah, that's right. a great point. Just to underscore the point, I mean, your network is behind a firewall. And the point of that firewall is so that you can go out to the internet, but the internet can't just come in at you, right? It lets traffic out. And then when there's incoming traffic, it will look to see, is this a response to a request from the network? And if it's not, it'll block it. And so you have some stuff that's web-facing, like your web server that's hosting your website, but that's hopefully outside of your network. I mean, you're protected behind this firewall. So if somebody wants to install malware in your network, 
they need to get someone inside your network to do something, to do something affirmative to invite the malware in. And that's why it's either clicking on a you know malicious link on a website or an email or downloading an attachment. So that's why the main delivery for malware is virtually always going to be some sort of social engineering. Gotcha. Before we conclude, we did get a couple questions from our audience. I do want to remind audience members, if you've got questions, you can email me or make a comment on uh, Twitter or LinkedIn, and you can also get more information about the podcast there or on our website. One listener indicates that they are an international business with offices in several different countries and are wondering whether they can get one cyber insurance policy that covers them in the different countries or whether they need to have insurers in each of the countries where they do business. Evan, do you know the answer to that? Yeah, the the whole uh, territory verbiage on any insurance policy will list where that coverage applies. And so like on a lot of property policies, it'll say this is just for the United States or this is for the United States and Mexico and Canada. Um, so I would just say, you know, work with a carrier that is comfortable underwriting global risk, but it's, that'll just be, it'll be outlined in the terms of the But there policy. are carriers that'll do right. global companies right. and say, we'll cover your attack right. no matter where you are. Yep. Okay, great. Another uh, listener asked, what is considered the minimum adequate cybersecurity policy? In other, in other words, what I think the real question is, is there some kind of standard coverage? You know, using the automotive example, obviously many states, including North Carolina, require a certain amount of uh, liability coverage. Is there kind of a similar, and for a long time, you know, for a lot of CGL things and insurance things, the idea was a million dollars of policy. At least that's what I often see right. from a contractual standpoint as kind of a practical minimum. And it's not set by statute, but a lot of people would say, well, I want to make sure you have a million dollars of coverage without a lot yep. of thought, candidly, about whether that's enough or too much. Has there become, is there any kind of norms around minimum coverage levels in the cyber area? Well, so like general liability or workers' compensation, they're oftentimes, they're payroll-based. And so I would say like cyber liability is going to be records-based is how the underwriting criteria is set. So it is going to depend on the business and again, the types, the quantity of records that they maintain on their network, uh, whether those are payment card records or healthcare records, or and we can run estimates that would say, this is a, a suitable limit. We would recommend this limit. There are certain small businesses that have called, and they just do small endorsements that are cyber-related that have smaller limits, and they're appropriate for their business. But if you're running a, a middle market business, oftentimes have to have larger limits in a standalone policy. It just can't be endorsed onto an existing policy. So, yeah, it's uh, something we just need to run estimates on. Thanks, Evan. Our last listener question says, what factor should I consider in deciding whether to pay a cyber ransom? And Alan had touched on that a little bit. I mean, I think you said it is pretty fact-specific and you have to work with law enforcement. I guess I'd, I'd invite either of you to chime in on other factors because it does sound like it's not a one-size-fits-all, either never pay or always pay. What are the kind of things that go into that, that calculus? I, I can speak on the insurance front. Do you want to speak operationally about what I mean, makes the most operationally, sense? Operationally, you just you're, you're bearing in mind that there is absolutely no guarantee that you get your records back, and also if the bad actor has persistence in your network, they just re-encrypt the next day. And so, you know, it's a very one-sided. If you don't have a backup, and you don't have another way out, it's a totally one-sided relationship. You know, <laughs> and and so this is something to bad. bear in mind. And then. Just by way of anecdote to expand on what I said earlier, with respect to this particular attack, the WannaCry attack, the way it was structured for the payments was that they had, I think, 
the WannaCry actor had like four Bitcoin wallets. And so you would have to go create your own Bitcoin wallet, transfer Bitcoin to one of theirs, and then you would have to like, I don't know if it was by email, but somehow you needed to then affirmatively contact the, the WannaCry folks and like let them know that you paid. And they had to go check that you'd paid and then manually decrypt your stuff. So that setup like might make sense if you had, I don't know, one victim or a hundred victims. Uh, but if you have a hundred thousand victims, you know, it's are they, scalable are they right. even going to have the like sort of, you know, is it going to be feasible for these actors to process all these payments and, and decrypt all the files? And so it's just, mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of moving Isn't parts. Isn't there some way to know? trace the payments? Obviously in, in the old days, right? You'd pay the uh, ransom and you'd put a little radio transmitter in the bag. And so mm -hmm. the criminals would take the bag home and open it up and say, $100,000. And then the cops would come, you know, bursting in saying, well, we, we followed the money or traced it. I, I realize, you know, we haven't done a, a session on Bitcoin. It's obviously a different yeah. animal in terms of the generic nature of the currency itself. But I wonder about electronic signatures. I guess, I, you know, there's a part of me that wonders, why can't you trace that money. Yeah. That money's got to end up somewhere. Don't we have people smart enough to figure out where it's going? <laughs> well, uh, we, we I'm should. Asking two, uh, yeah, we yeah, I'm asking a former FBI yeah. agent, a former, you know. Yeah, we should <laughs> do a thing on Bitcoin. And we did a number of Bitcoin investigations. And I think that it's important to bear in mind that kind of the point of Bitcoin when it was developed as a concept was to prevent exactly what you're saying. And also, it's not like there is an artifact that goes anywhere. It's merely a public ledger. So that's merely, you know, a ledger that deducts a certain amount in your wallet and adds a certain amount in another person's wallet. So there's nothing, there's nothing digital that moves from one place to another that you can call a Bitcoin and that you could attach something to. And that the nature of Bitcoin, I, I encourage you to go to blockchain.org and you can see the blockchain software at work and you can watch every Bitcoin transaction happen every few minutes. You know, it keeps updating the next block on the blockchain. But if a person has been able to obtain their wallet in a totally anonymous way and then has a way to cash out their wallet in a totally anonymous way, then, yeah, you can't. You can't. But the efforts of law enforcement are always on those two places. How did they get their wallet and, and how are they cashing out? Because once you're in the Bitcoin ecosystem, you can track all the payments you want, but it's just a number. And I mean, Owen, when we talk about Bitcoins to pay, to not pay, should you, shouldn't you, Again, I'm going to go back to thinking about the relationships you have to have in place. So you're in, there are incident response firms that they have paid Bitcoin ransom payments on behalf of their customers dozens, hundreds of times. And so, again, it is worthwhile to already have a relationship in place with a competent, efficient, proficient incident response provider so that should it happen and you're actually considering whether to do it, they're able to they're they're looking at the malware signatures almost instantaneously because those relationships are already in place. If you do choose to pay the Bitcoin, they do that in a really efficient manner around the insurance. So again, they're they're cyber extortion line items where you're reimbursed for ransom payments that you pay. Like any good insurance policy, you have to read the verbiage that's in your policy because typically what will happen is a there's time requirements on when you have to notify a carrier that you've been made aware of a breach on your network. So you have to make sure you notify your carrier so that they can limit the damage. And it's not just the wild, wild west where you pay a ransom, you call your carrier and say, write me a check. It's a very controlled process where a carrier, um, good carriers are going to manage that breach and the resolution of that breach very hands-on in that process. And then you'll, you'll just make sure that everything is paid for like it should be. So, 
Evan, I know we've talked in some previous episodes about the importance of getting outside counsel involved so you can assess your liability, make sure you're taking the right steps. Does the insurance company typically provide those? Does the company use their regular outside counsel and get reimbursed? Is it, What's that relationship between the Great carrier, question. the insurance company, the, the law firms? How, how does that dynamic work? Uh, both. So um, a lot of the carriers will allow you to use existing relationships that you have but they have to be pre-approved. So um, there's some processes in place. They just want to make sure that the, you're working with a competent professional law firm that has experience in the space. You're working with a competent professional incident response provider that has experience in the space. Again, that's all carrier placement. So you want to make sure if you've got a very close relationship with Womble Carlisle, you would want to make sure you get placed with a carrier that's going to honor that and allow you to continue to work with, with Womble. So. Great. Thanks. All right, folks, it's time to move on to the uh, lighter side of the show, the quiz. Evan, as we mentioned earlier, since you were an FBI agent in your career, we wanted to ask some trivia questions about the Bureau, uh, particularly uh, significant since the FBI has been in the news quite a bit of late uh, and is likely to remain so. As usual, Alan, I will allow you to be the backup in the event. Evan surprises us, huh? And the lifeline? Yeah, the lifeline. Yeah, the call a friend (laughs) available. Um, Evan, our first question, what pre, is... Pre-week lifeline. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we have to establish some kind of call a friend or other yeah. uh, other help. But um, what is the nickname for FBI agents supposedly coined by George Machine Gun Kelly and made popular during the golden age of Hollywood? Yeah, G-Men. G-Men. That's right. Uh, All right. He didn't even hesitate. No hesitation. It's almost yeah. like he knew where I was going yeah. from the first line. I bet he's got like a... You know, hello, my name is He's G-Man got... sticker at home. <laughs> he probably does. You know? <laughs> While commonly misidentified as an FBI agent, Elliot Ness actually served in the Treasury Department where he famously brought down Al Capone. Kevin Costner portrayed the iconic lawman in which 1987 film? Yeah, I'm going to have to call Lifeline in. Uh, the Untouchables? The Untouchables. All right. Lifeline actually comes there through. There we go. Well done, Alan. No problem. I, I, sent, re- I sent redemption here on podcast yeah. number two. Yeah. Not, not like podcast number one. <laughs> <laughs> Although, I don't know how many questions are left. We'll, we'll see. We have right. two more right. questions. <laughs> Question number three. How many times has Clint Eastwood portrayed an FBI agent in movies? I will give you options oh, on great. this one, Thank given you. the uh, level Very of gracious. difficulty of this. Is it A, four times, B, two times, C, once? Go out on a limb and say four. Alan, any thoughts? Okay. I, I'll have I'm to going, give you the I'm buzzer I'm going with uh, C, just once. Once. That is correct. Alan, yeah. again, with a lifetime for extra credit. Can you name uh, the movie? Uh, no, I can't. And and C is usually my go-to choice when I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> Very so, clever. That's uh, that's what you get paid the you know, big bucks that's for. That's right. Well, it's, a, it's a numbers what game. Is, what is the movie? Go to C. The movie is Block Work. Blood Work. Blood, Blood Work. Work, a 2002 film. Also, Eastwood did direct 2011's J. Edgar. Oh, yeah. So yep. he directed one, but the only one he was an FBI agent in is Blood Work. Question number four, but we, you are three for three um, based on Alan's insightful always pick C when in doubt rule. Um, number four is agents Fox Mulder and Dana Scully attempt to solve the FBI's most bizarre and unexplained cases on what beloved TV series? X-Files. 
X-Files again, the lifeline. X-Files it is. Alan reserves it. He didn't even let He Evan, beat me to Evan the punch. Evan was clearly thinking about it. He beat me to the he punch. he just jumped in. He saw a little, little bit of hesitancy, <laughs> clearly uh, we had pushing, a, we pushing had a, hard for redemption. <laughs> in we had the, a silent uh, communication quiz. over here. Yeah, he, 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 look. he looked yeah, over at me. Our listeners can see the eyes. <laughs> and he said, back what, and what did you get me gave you the fish in the freezer look. The beads of sweat forming on Evan's forehead as he tries to remember the name of the show he watched several times as a youngster. No, good job. Well, that's a four for four. Um, uh, yes. That, that's high Radically performance. Radically different you put than it, last time. put it in the, uh, definitely in the top tier of podcast quiz shows. It's a good thing so I did all, gonna that, have all to, that preparation and yeah, training. We're going to have to have a, an, a quiz show only, you know, <laughs> anniversary edition as we hit, uh, you know, 20 editions of the podcast and bring back some of the people that have done the best on uh, on podcasts and convert this into the, uh, the legal I quiz like show it. game. I like it. Great. Evan, thank you very much uh, for being thank here. You. Alan, thanks for, for coming back, and you're close by, so these are, are cutting-edge issues, so we may have you back again on a, on a future podcast. Evan, if, if our listeners want to hear more about you or have questions about insurance or other information, what's the best way to either get in touch with you or, or, or follow any, any kind of activities you may have coming up, presentations or, or those kind of yeah, things? Yeah, that's great. So, um, Easiest probably to reach me by email, evan.taylor at nfp.com, which is National Financial Partners, NFP. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn, and then also have a Twitter handle, which is at Hack Insurance. So um, generally, I'll publicize things there for gut speaking engagements or whatnot. So yeah, thank you all for in- inviting me. Absolutely. Well, I've enjoyed it. This is a timely and important topic. So uh, I think we've gotten some good practical tips from our clients. I'll remind our listeners, you can find previous episodes of Bulldog Bites as well as subscribe on either iTunes or Google Play by going to wcsr.com forward slash podcast, or if you just search for Bulldog Bites uh, in Google Play or iTunes podcast stores, you'll be able to get it. Again, questions or comments can be shared on LinkedIn and Twitter. Thank you for listening. Remember, it's a dog-eat-dog world out there. Chew carefully. Bye.